eggplant that ain't Chicago. The eggplant that ain't Chicago. I wish I could get that out of my head. I can't stop it. For some crazy reason, uh, this afternoon, I'm, I'm talking to a guy on the phone. And have you ever had your head go to sleep right in the middle of an important thing, you know? And, uh, and suddenly he's gone, but I still got the phone. I go, he's talking away, they say. And all that's going through my head is the eggplant that ain't Chicago. Oh, the eggplant that ain't Chicago. Yes, it's the eggplant that ain't Chicago. Oh, by the way, before we do anything else tonight, a very great personage has passed away, has gone into the netherworld. And so tonight, I think we should take this opportunity to salute that great personage and uh, speed him on his way properly. Just quietly, Bill, quietly. Just quietly first, and then bring it in. Just quietly. Yes, as it comes to all men, so it has come to a great character of the frozen north. I want you to listen carefully tonight as we pay this simple, humble tribute to one of the great, one of the great, great characters of the past hundred years. Death has ended the fabulous career of a non-voting inhabitant of the Yukon Territory who piled up over an estimated 125 years the reputation for being the hardest-drinking, best-swearing, dirtiest no-good in town. He lived through the gold rush, a shipwreck, fires, and countless blizzards. Everybody called him just plain Polly. That's all they called him. No one knew his exact age, but residents say that he was there in the 1898 gold rush, and he was old even then. They calculate that maybe 125 years, all told or untold as the case may be, passed by his totally raucous eyes. The owner of the Caribou Hotel in Carcross, Yukon Territory, reported Polly's death yesterday and said with some emotion he's always been quite a boozer, but always knew when. Knew that precise moment. He would just slide off his stool, never caused any trouble. Just slid off his stool, stuck his feet up in the air, and quietly drifted off into dreamland. He hit the jug. Later in life, however, he he swore off liquor, and he learned several verses of onward Christian soldiers. He got religion to the point where he dropped some of his racier comments, and he was well into his 110th year, and even gave up his repertoire of salty sea chanties. He became shy of adults, associating them with his old bad habits. And whenever they spoke to him in his latter years, 120, 125 years, he brushed them off with a simple, go to hell. All he said, go to hell. Children invited his courtesy. With them, he would retreat into a mumbo-jumbo of words that would not offend even a small-town parson trained by Billy Graham. Few who came to the Yukon will ever forget Old Polly, 125 years or better. His funeral arrangements were by the very nature of things remarkably simple. The way he lived, that was the way he would have wanted it. He is now gone. All right, let's sing it out for Polly. 
Yes, I'm walking. I'm walking, yeah. I'm walking, walking, walking with thee. I'm walking. I'm walking. Yeah, I'm walking, walking with I'm walking, yes, I'm walking, I'm walking with you. Yeah. 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 You know, you know who he was? Do you know anything about him? Well, he's a, a great character. <laughs> and uh, when I was up in, in uh, I was up in, uh, in Nome, well, the first time I heard of Polly, and uh, I, was, I was standing out in front of the, the Polar Bar. It's a terrible name for a, <laughs> for a bar, but that's what they call it, the Polar Bar. And the wind was blowing in off the Bering Sea. And uh, what was it? You know, it was a, it was a typical Yukon day. I'm standing there in front of the polar bar, my hands in my pockets, wearing a parka. And I'm standing next to Albro B. Gregory, who is the uh, renowned editor of the Yukon or the Gnome Nugget. Where you're standing and the wind is howling. <laughs> and it's just whistling up and down the street. And he says, uh, you know, he says, not a bad day. I said, no, it ain't. Albro, the wind howled more. And then uh, Albro says, you know, been thinking. He says, you asked me last night when we was playing pool over there in the Baranoff Hotel. Baranoff Hotel has three and a half rooms. He says, uh, we was playing pool, remember? And I said, yes, I do, Albro. He said, you asked me who was the meanest person I ever met up here in Yukon. Been thinking. I said, yeah, who? He says, Polly. I said, Polly? He said, you never heard such a tongue. He said, you never heard such a mouth. He said, my God, that is the swearingest, dirtiest, most miserable, toughest, most evil parrot that I ever saw. He said, ain't nobody up here in the Yukon that doesn't know about Polly. And nobody knows how old he was. Uh, they, the earliest record of Polly came when somebody took over a hotel, an old hotel in the White House, White Horse Territory. And Polly came with the, with the building. And even then, he was an ancient parrot. And they took it over, and he, uh, the minute they walked in, it's a famous story, they walked in to take over this old hotel. And he's sitting on that perch, you know, on these little wooden perches they got for parrots. And he's hanging on that perch, see? And this guy walked in there who took over the hotel, and the year was 1896, two years before the gold rush. He walks in there. Two years, did you hear what I said? Two years before the gold rush. This mean old red-eyed parrot had been there for many years before. Nobody knew how he got there, although the rumor was that a Chinese operator of an illicit junk had dropped him off one day in, in Juneau and said, Good riddance. And he walked all the way up to the Yukon Territory. They, nobody knew where he came from. Absolutely nobody had any idea. He just went back year after year. And so the owner of this hotel, the new owner, walks in. And he sees that parrot sitting there, looking him right in the eye. Now, he had probably seen 15, 20 owners before that going all the way back, quite possibly to the days when uh, 
it was under Russian control. Maybe he, maybe he, even, he, even, he was there, you know, when the, <laughs> when, when the Russians first came over there. Anyway, he's standing there on that perch. Guy walks in. Well, what's the first thing you say to a parrot? No, that is not the first thing you say to a parrot. What is the first thing you say to a parrot, I repeat? Well, look, what, 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 what do all of us, Dildocs, say to a parrot? First thing we say is, Polly want a cracker, right? I don't know why we say that to parrots. Uh, somewhere along, the myth got going, the parrot's got a thing on crackers. Well, he said that. He's just, and this, this is what made him famous throughout the entire Yukon. He walks in, he says, Polly want a cracker? There was a long pause, and the Polly, all Polly said was, you go to hell. Well, he staggered back. He says, Polly want a cracker? Bourbon! That's all he said. Well, he tried to give him I.W. Harper. And that just wasn't cutting any ice with that parrot. For those of you that are curious, he drank only Jim Beam preferred. Maybe that's why he lived to be 125 years, swearing to the last. And when he passed into the great beyond today, the Yukon lost one of its truly great characters. Just called, yeah, he's a parrot. Fantastic character, because they laid him away, and he's legendary up there. Now, I, I don't know <laughs> I don't know whether you've uh, ever had, you know, speaking of legendary characters, uh, I, uh, I've, I've, I've often thought, you know, what, what it is that makes a legend. Being popular doesn't make you legendary. In fact, quite often, being unpopular causes a legend. Legend. As a matter of fact, we had... I was a kid, see, and there was this lady living across the street from us. Now, there are... You know, you know the human parrot is, is... You know the kind with the stringy neck? There's certain ladies that are born with long, thin, stringy necks. They've got these, these cold, sort of greenish-blue, beetling eyes rimmed with red. And across the street from me lived this lady, Mrs. Trainer. Now, Mrs. Trainer is as legendary as Polly for many of the same reasons. There was a profane quality about Mrs. Trainer. And uh, <laughs> nobody knew who Mr. Trainer was. It was just only a Mrs. Trainer. And she was of indeterminate age. Rumors were that, uh, that the, she went back two, three, four hundred years. She could have been any age. Thin, wiry. I'll give you a clue to Mrs. Trainer's character. Mrs. Trainer had a small white dog with black ears. Now it's a it's a breed of dog you rarely hear about. Have you ever heard of a Spitz? You hear I've heard of a Spitz. Mean, oh, they're mean. Yellow teeth. And this little this little Spitz used to used to wait inside the screen door. And one day. The uh, mailman came walking up to Mrs. Trainer's house there with the usual collection of junk mail that Mrs. Trainer got along with the rest of us. And something in his eye, after he, all those years, he was there as long as anybody could remember, that little dog would look out and just, there would be a low rumbling in his throat whenever anyone would approach. He would never do anything, just, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of low rumbling of malevolent contained danger. I mean, latent danger. Which reminds me, this is W.O.R. New York. And I remember that Spitz looking out just rumbling. Well, one day, the mailman, who had been coming up to those same 
screen doors in the back of Mrs. Trina's house for like 110 years himself. He comes casually walking up there with the junk mail, and there was something the way he walked. It was the day when all the factors got together, all the various forces that, that caused this spontaneous uh, eruption of total passion finally fit. It was like a jigsaw puzzle fitting together. And he just walked up to this porch. The back porch there, the screen door was closed, and this Spitz was doing what it always did. And suddenly it just backed up and pow, right through the screen. He made a hole, just Spitz-shaped, right through the screen. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> that, that mailman must have been 74 years old, but that guy got down to the corner, which was a good 200 yards away, in less than seven seconds flat trailing mail behind him. And what was going on? Mrs. Trainer was on the back porch hollering, Get him! Get him! So that gives you an idea of that kind of character. Now, Mrs. Trainer is today, right now, a legend in that part of Indiana for numerous things. Not the least of which, she was one of the best feelers I ever saw in my life. She was unbelievable in going to her right. Now, any good, any good shortstop will tell you going to your right is, is, is especially if you're if you're right-handed. Going to your right is one of the toughest plays that a shortstop can make because you're going away from your glove side. Well, Mrs. Trainer used to come out the minute a foul ball was hit anywhere near her yard, that old doll would move like a shadow go to her right, she'd feel those hard, short hops, and she'd zap up the front porch and into the house. This old doll must have fielded over 400 foul balls in her time, and she had a whole coal bin full of them. And one time, I mean, one time, <laughs> the ultimate finally happened. Somebody somebody caught a hold of a fastball, and they, they pulled it, and it went right through her front, right through her front... <laughs> Her front door window, you know, the, she had one of these glass doors, and that baby went right through, and 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 it just you just went a uh, line drive, you know, right through, and it carried this curtain. The curtain was, and it just carried the curtain right in with it. See, well, that ball, it just went right through the glass, and it was all one one motion, one scream, one motion. It just went pow, ah! with that high scream, and that 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 yell, that 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 yell of deep Grecian. Tragedy. Mrs. Trainer caught one. And that, I'll tell you, she came out of that house. She came out of that house like the wraith of God. And there, there we were out there. There was about nine of us playing ball, and, and there is not one of us. I'll tell you that all of all eight of us were walking around, nine including me. There isn't one of us that at times today doesn't wake up. Late at night with a cold sweat seeing Mrs. Trainer come with those two red beady eyes. You know? Trailing bits of glass. Knocked over her fern plant, which is even worse. See, she didn't grow ferns. She had ferns in the fern plant holder. You know, one of these, these, uh, these wicker things, you know, with the ferns growing out of it? Now, you would think that she'd grow ferns in it, right? Well, she did have ferns in it, but what was she growing in it? Aphids. She was an aphid fan. She grew ferns only for the aphids to eat. Gives you an idea of that legendary-type character. And so tonight, we must salute Polly, long departed this earth. 
wherever Polly is now tonight, sitting on the edge of whatever Elysian pool, just looking with beady, bleary, angry eyes. Do you think Polly went to heaven or to hell? Do birds go to heaven or hell? This is a theological question that has been asked many times. And speaking of theology, we have a commercial for you here. Hi, this is Tex Ritter for the New York, New Jersey, American Motors dealers. And they're coming on strong. Coming on strong. Oh, coming on strong. Coming on strong. Yes, yeah, sing it out, Tex. Cause we've got the quality yeah, yeah. in the cars you want to buy. Oh, the cars you want to buy. Section of AMC. Drive the number one value. Yeah, Tex. In a cafe. It'll be free. AMC Hornet Hatchback. Big standard six. Huge hatch panel. Fold down rear seats. New safety levers. AMC buyer protection plan. And now a special price. That's value. American style. AMC. Very loud, man, isn't he? Coming on strong. See your New York, New Jersey American Motors dealer now. And tell them a text sent you. Yeah, text. Coming on strong. Ah, coming on strong. Uh, let's see. We have a note here from uh, New York Magazine. Uh, it's about massage parlors. Oh. It says, pretty powerful people are the landlords of these filth-laden pleasure palaces. The pornographic bookstores, the flea bag hotels, the peep shows. Talking about my neighborhood. And this week in New York Magazine, in an article entitled The Landlords of Hell's Bedroom, reporter, hard hitting girl reporter Gail Sheehy names names. And lays it right out there. So you can't you can't miss this exciting issue. It reads like a who's who of Park Avenue, but it's really a diary of what's happened on Sneaky Rotten Forty Second Street. Bum bum bum. If that isn't enough for you, here's something to make you think how sweet it is. The Mike Douglas Show is in Miami with Jackie Gleason as co-host. Don't miss the comedy and the nostalgia tomorrow at 4.30 on Channel 2, New York. Do they know here that we're plugging Channel 2 here at WR? Does somebody, who sneaked that in on us? Now, you're going to have to have something to recover from the Mike Douglas Show. So uh, after you've watched that for a while, you'll have to be a little shaky, so... We would like to recommend here that you, uh, uh yeah, well, I know, maybe we better not, dis- maybe we better not to recommend that. Our kids listening. What we, what we will recommend, though, after you've watched that, uh, that show there, probably need something to bring your spirits back to life, and we would like to recommend that to visit to, uh, the House of Chan. Has 22 chefs standing on there, each in front of a walk. A walk, yeah. Oh, a closer walk with the uh, 22 chefs standing in front of their walks. So uh, each meal is carefully prepared when you order it, not before. So the minute you walk in, you holler, A cheese burger! Sweet and sour! They turn it out just like that. Zip, wham. The guy second from the end is the specialist in sweet and sour cheese burgers. And he knocks it out. That's the way the Chinese pronounce it. And I would like to recommend the House of Chan, 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. And by the way, you can uh, have a little Thanksgiving in the Chinese manner. Find out about it by calling the House of Chan. 
I still can't get that out of my head, you know. Oh, the eggplant that ate Chicago. La da tee tee dee tee tee. The eggplant that ate Chicago. La da tee tee dee 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 tee. The eggplant. No, no, that isn't exactly the. Uh... Well, of course, that, that's a certain uh, problem that people have to face. It's like uh, got a, got a note from this guy. He says, "I'm fascinated by these ads. You know, the TV ads uh, for the ads that say the bank that manages money. Have you seen that one?" Yeah, there's, there's one that's advertising itself. To... Have you noticed that a lot of banks have gone out of the banking business now? And they've come out with big, thick catalogs of various... Uh, they're, they're in the business of selling uh, can openers and, uh, and uh, you know, and the hair dryers and stuff like that. You mean you haven't seen that? Where have you been to? What do, what do they do over there in Jersey? I see. It's still under the uh, mattress over there. They don't use banks yet. I see. Well, over here in New York, we've got friendly banks. We've got a bank where you can go. You've got a friend. Uh, we got another one that manages money, and uh, we got one that gives gift stamps every time you come in and give them some money. And uh, yeah, there are all kinds of little come-ons that are going on down in the banking world. But this this one bank, I went in the bank the other day. See, I sneak into a bank now and again because it makes me feel warm to just go into a bank. And, uh, yeah, I go in there, and, and uh, I stand over by one of these little glass counters, you know, where the people come in and fill out the forms. You know, the little forms there. And uh, I come in, I walk, you have to walk very briskly up to those because invariably some guy with a uh, dark coat on says, well, may I help you, please? Well, you know, what are you going to say uh, to a guy in a bank? Yeah, I'm just shopping around, uh, you know. Uh, where's the bond department? Uh, oh, gee, that's nice over there, very nice. Uh, show me where the vice president sit. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't know quite what to say to those guys. They always, uh, you know, they always imply that you know how to fill out your check or something, see? And so you walk in very quickly. You walk briskly and make sure that you do not catch his eye. Because if you do catch his eye, instantly, he steps on a button and they start taking your picture. Thousands of pictures have been taken of you. Now you're standing over there and you're wearing your, you know, your rotten-looking coat with the tear in the back that you're trying to hide. And uh, I, I go over there and I stand by those glass counters, see, and I fill out a couple of those forms like this, see? Then I stamp it. And I fill it out again, see? I fill out two or three more of them like that. Then I look around. <clears throat> then uh, I look over at the uh, thing where, you know, the little date thing that says there, it's always on this glass counter. And then I look at it, see? And I and I react. It's always, I always get a laugh like this from the teller. See, I write, oh! Oh, no, oh, no. I throw them all, see, I throw all my forms away then. See, I filled them all out wrong, is what they think. See, I fill them all out wrong, and then I get very mad and walk out. I've been doing that in the same bank for three, four months now, and I, I've never put any money in or taken any out. I just go in there. Now they know me, see? So, well, hello. And every day I go in, fill out my forms, get mad, and throw them away. Well, <laughs> that's as sensible as what most people do in banks. You know, after all... Uh, funny thing about banks. I've never quite figured out what a bank really does, but uh, this one bank advertised itself as managing money. It says, we manage money. Well, uh, uh, this uh, writer here says to me, what the hell do the other banks do? Shower it over their heads like Scrooge McDuck? You know, they'll manage it at all. They said, <laughs> they're sitting there, you know, when you leave, they take your dollars, they throw it up in the air and yell. And <laughs> Can't you imagine one guy you know, one one real hip bank director, you know, after, after the day, they close the doors, you know, at 3 o'clock. You know, they always do that, see. 
But they all stay in there. You notice that when the door is closed, you can see them in there working around. Can you imagine the talk that would that would happen if uh, one day, you know, here on 6th Avenue or 7th Avenue, we're right in the middle of town, see, they close the door at 3 o'clock. You know you're really in in town here when you come running up to a bank after they've locked the door, <clears throat> you know, and the guard is sitting there and he won't let him in again, and he lets you in. He says, well, come on, hurry up, just come in there. It's only a couple of minutes. Then you know you're in. You know, and the only guys like George Plimpton get that treatment. You know, you do. Well, the measly little amount of money you're going to go that they're going to upset their bookkeeping. You know, when you come in and change a quarter, you know, for two dimes and a nickel, the usual little things you engineers do. I know your type, but that's <laughs> true. You come in and you get some matches from the thing where it has the free matches. You know, and so. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's guys that look like they're liable to come in, you know, draw twelve thousand dollars out after they've already started to balance the books. You know, are they going to deposit one hundred and forty thousand? That's the kind they don't let in. But you measly little, uh, you know, the guys that come in and say, "Can I borrow your water?" Uh, they'll let, them, <laughs> you know. But uh, nevertheless, see, uh, I, I, you know, you get this this great feeling uh, when they let you in. But I, I, uh, I, uh, I, I just think it would be kind of a groovy thing. See if some some bank. Some bank executives. You know, bank executives are always, uh, you, every couple of months you read this story, you know, bank executive disappears with $600,000. Town goes into mourning. He was the greatest guy they ever knew. He ran the PTA. He was so wonderful and all that, you know. And uh, he's discovered down at Hialeah with some bimbo, you know, and they're, they're putting all the dough on, on the third race and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> well, so, so inside those staid exteriors, there beats the rakish heart of a uh, latent uh, Clyde of Bonnie Ann fame, right? So, uh, oh, yeah, they say that people are always attracted to the very thing that uh, that is, is always bothering them. So most guys that, that are always afraid they're going to go to hell, they tend to try to become ministers. They figure if they, you know, if they, if they become a minister, they'd be on the right side, and if they do go to hell, they'll get a few, you know, a few brownie points when they arrive there, see? So, yeah, that, like guys that, that uh, you know, for years are pulling straws out of their head tend to study psychology. Yeah, you know, the, the guy at the age of 12, you know, is sitting there tearing up papers and he's, he's uh, writing obscene notes on, on little paper airplanes that he flies out the window. He tends to wind up, yeah, he tends to wind up becoming your local analyst. Now, this is an unfortunate fact. And uh, <laughs> it's true. I'm, I'm sorry. I wish it weren't. <laughs> but it is true. And uh, and uh, so underneath that, that hard shell, there always lies uh, something else, which you would never suspect. That in, in, underneath the, the disheveled shell of your total hippie uh, beats the heart of probably the ultimate square. Every, every guy who, who, who secretly feels that he's totally out of it, you know, he has trouble reading the Reader's Digest without moving his lips. He winds up sitting in coffee shops down in the village, you know, carrying around Schopenhauer, pretending he's a total intellectual. <laughs> this is, you know, we're always attracted to the opposite thing. This is an old problem. It's always been that way. So, uh, yeah, guys that run, uh, guys that run the clubs, you know, that say, uh, learn how to, to, to be uh, the biggest man in your neighborhood, learn laughs and jokes. You know, come and uh, study the Dale Carnegie, whatever it is, you know, the, one of these courses, you know, where you they learn... They're often run by guys, you know. They got the uh, got the average, uh, well, your the average uh, personality of a snapping turtle. No, a snapping turtle. Have you ever, have you ever seen a snapping turtle in work? <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> yeah. There's a certain dogged quality of a snapping turtle. 
He shows no emotions when he bites your leg in half. He just shows no emotion. Just the, his eyes are as blank before as they were after. He doesn't even get any pleasure out of biting. He just bites, which is, you know, kind of rotten. I'd like to see a snapping turtle love his work, you know, but the, they just do it. <laughs> but the, nevertheless, I'd love to see this, this movie. You know, you're walking up Fifth Avenue's Elegant Bank. You know, it's, it's 20 after 3. You look in the window. And here they are. they got champagne bottles, and this chick is sitting on this guy's knee, and they're swinging from the chandeliers, and they're throwing money up in the air. The bank is having a little uh, little relaxing uh, after-work party. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be inclined to put my dough in that bank, you know, just to see what had happened. <laughs> For no other reason, you know. Of course, it's liable to become expensive if you did. But then again, it's been expensive in other banks, too, where they have the, you know, the celluloid collars they're still wearing. That's the guy. Look at him. He's on his way to Hialeah now, wearing his celluloid collar. I don't know why I'm doing this to you on this night. I mean, up, up to this point, you were so solid, you know. Everything worked, right? Well, you know, speaking of, uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, you know, you, you just can't, you just can't figure it out where it is. Like today, I get a call from this, uh, of this paper, see, they're doing a story on me. The guy calls up and he says, Hey, he said, uh, I forgot to ask you. He said, When we did this interview, he said, uh, When you were a kid, uh, what, what the, did any literature affect you? What were you affected by? What, what, the, what, what the turned the trick with you? You know, what the. Well, now I realize, of course, uh, if I were, you know, some very, uh, uh, you know, if, if, if there's a certain kind of pomposity that one develops after one has become at a certain level where newspapers are asking you to do the, you know, to, to, to uh, tell them what, what your early influences are. Now, this is where you really have a chance to let the pomposity factor that is within all of us ooze out rich and dark. I mean, it just, ooh, it just comes oozing out. And uh, so the, uh, right there, I could have said, uh, mm, let's see, uh, well, I believe that it was uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Upon reading Milton's Paradise Lost, I realized that the man's eternal search for uh, paradise on earth was always to be beset by the constant cross-currents of his imperfect and yet, in, in some ways, his sublime basic nature. Now, upon reading man's uh, shortcomings and his great dreams and strivings in Milton's Paradise Lost, I realized at that point now that would that would have gone over real good in the paper when the shepherd says paradise lost. Well, I thought about that for a minute, seeing I says, Well, I'll call you back. And so I looked around and would you believe it, I have right here a copy of the actual book that turned Shepherd into a walking around little totally straight square type. You know, I just like any other kid, you know, with the knicker pants and my idea of a real fantastic, uh, unbelievably passionate ball was to go out and buy Fifteen cents worth of Twinkies. A big night, you know. Have some Twinkies, wash them down with Mary Jane's, knock down a few, uh, you know, have a have yourself a Coke. And it was a myth, of course. It was a belief in our neighborhood that if you drank a Coke and then quickly followed it with an aspirin, you'd get higher in a kite. Do you remember that? Well, I saw Schwartz once do it. Drank a Coke, ate an aspirin, and fell over. We couldn't wake him up for an hour and a half. And then we, that's right, it worked. A suggestion. And then when we did get him up, he was reeling around, yelling, and, you know, saying, oh, oh, boy, am I drunk. Wow. And it was a sickening thing. It almost threw him out of the Warren G. Harding School, you know, drunk and disorderly after recess. That was the charge. 
But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I, I uh, see, I walked into the, I used to go down to the, to the library, you know, like many kids go to libraries. I think libraries are basically kid things, say. Either kids or old men. Uh, old men go in there to sleep and snooze over the, you know, over the papers. Kids go in there to actually get books. So I'd go to the library. I really love my library cards. And I'd go down there, and uh, and I, I liked sea stories. I had just finished reading. I just finished reading uh, Captain Blood. You ever read Captain Blood? You ever heard of the movie Captain Blood? Well, that's a fantastic book. And, uh, boy, it was wild. See, and there was this lady named Mrs. Easter who was our librarian. And she would save books for me, like she saved for all the other kids. She knew what all the other kids liked, see. So I came in one day, and I said, uh, Mrs. Easter, uh, do you have another book for me? She says, why, yes, I do. Uh, this is a, a, a book. I was going through a lot of things here. She says, and I have an old book here that I think you really enjoy, and it's a sea story. And I said, a sea story? Gee, that's great. And it has a picture of a fish on it, see? So she gave me this book, and I took it out. You know, she stamped my card, and I walked home with it. It's called Saltwater Taffy. Now, that sounds like a kid book, in addition to a sea kid book, right? So I go into the front bedroom, and I opened up the book, and there's a map inside you know, these old-time maps that look like it's from the 18th century? It's an old brown map, and it's inside. And there's a picture of Spain. It said, uh, in Spain, there's an old ancient uh, writing here. It says, nothing happened in Spain. What the hell is that? See, so I'm sitting there reading, nothing happened in Spain. Hmm. And uh, here's another one. You know how it shows the wind up there? It always shows the wind on the top of the map blowing. You know, with puffy cheeks, it's blowing, and you see the wind coming out of its mouth. And above it, it says, I can swear a curve in the wind. And the wind is hollering, damn, hell, oh, Shaw, shucks. <laughs> so I started to read the book, see? It's a sea story. I'm going through here. And now the opening chapter, chapter one, and has a little, little preface to chapter one, one line. And it's in italics. It says, uh, quote, women are mostly liars anyhow. Father. Hmm. But I'm a kid, see, I can't figure out what this is about. And the opening line says, and I'm reading it to you right now, she's just a girl author, ma'am, filled with the hot air of the tropics she is, drifting day and night with the southern skies for a blanket, the southern stars like asterisks overhead, and all the seven seas to supply her with her bunk. Yes, it was old Bridges, a member of our crew. And he was defending me to the wife of an American consul attached to one of the Virgin Islands. She had heard of my adventures along the waterfront. <laughs> that is, she had been along the waterfront and heard of my adventures. And she knew that I had been brought up on a ship among a lot of men without any softening feminine influence save that of a large female shark. That confused me. Large female shark. Consequently, old Britches, feeling that he must uphold the dignity of his captain's daughter, was rallying to my cause with all the quaint, seagoing dialect he could remember. Well, by that time, I was halfway through the dirtiest book I had read since a kid came around at the Warren D. Harding school and showed me this little book with blue covers that had Maggie and Jigs in it. And it was from the library. I didn't know they had books like that in the library. My idea of the library was totally different. Well, I'll tell you, I went through that book twice. 
took me about eight minutes from cover to cover. And uh, I take the book back to the library, and Mrs. Easter says, Did you like the book? And I said, Yeah. Do you have any more like that? She said, Well, it's a very interesting book, isn't it? It's about the sea, isn't it? Do you know anything about saltwater taffy? Thick glasses look very serious, and you keep little notebooks about things you're going to do, and it's a very different kind of guy. By the way, you know, speaking of books, I'm going to answer a question here. I can't... I can't do it any other way, and I'm going to take this this thing here. Because if I get one letter, I get 500 letters a month from people who write to me. This drives an author right up the right up the right up the the wall. And the the question always is this: I have tried to get your book. I've gone in, and and I just got about 10 of them today. I went in, I tried to get the God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, or Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories, and they don't have it in our bookstore. And they write to me and ask me what to do. I have no idea. And it drives me up my tree. I really seriously don't know what to say about that. And uh, all I can say is both those books are in print. And they're available. And if your bookstore says they're not, they're either just too lazy to do anything about it or they're just flat lying. Is there, I, I, I've never been able to get that answer. Both of these books have been on bestseller lists, and yet, Many, many people who go into bookstores simply can't get them. And I mean national bestseller lists. So I can't figure it out. Huh? I can't uh, read what you're saying. Who published them? What you're saying? Oh, my new book that's coming out, no? But I can't... Uh, is there anybody out there who works in a bookstore who can, who can tell us why they never have these books? Is there anybody out there listening tonight? Give us a call. I'd love to talk to you about it. And while while you're doing that, let's do a general tire spot. What do you say? I mean, if you're planning on uh, riding hub deep in the snow, no, it's not necessarily the wrong stores. I wish it wish it were that simple. No, it's a curious thing. Some of the best stores simply don't. Some of the stores you wouldn't guess do. So I, it's not that simple, Phil. Really, if it were that simple, I'd say, well, go to a good bookstore. No way, because many a good bookstore today specializes in Snoopy sweatshirts. Uh, you know, and in Lucy Christmas cards. Get set for the rugged winter driving ahead, friends, during pick-a-pair time at your local general headquarters. And you pick up a pair of these beautiful winter cleat tires. They're the rugged four-rib snow tire. Try saying that fast. And remember their beautiful promise, which incidentally is, uh, I understand now, going to be the title of a major Broadway musical next year. You go in snow or general pays the toll. Can't you see these chicks all coming out dancing? You know, with the snow coming out of the wings, they're carrying skid chains. Oh, wonderful idea. Uh, if you uh, live in, uh, let's see, in Danbury, why don't you go see Frank Burns? He's at the General Tire Service, 233 White Street. Nice man. And uh, let's see. I think I'll follow that with another General Tire commercial. I'll maybe we just follow it right up again. If you, don't, you know, if you haven't heard the first one solid, I'll give it to you again. Get set for the rugged winter driving ahead during pick-a-pair time. At your local General Tire headquarters, you take your pick. You can get either winter tires or regular tires, and they're having a big sale. You know, you go in there and pick a pair. You can get two great regular tires for the front and two snow tires for the back and get rid of those baldies of yours. By the way, uh, um, <laughs> that's all right. When I think of some of the tires I've driven on, man, here I'm doing tire spots. I had a set of tires once on this Ford that I had that you could actually read the paper through the tread. You could take it, you know, hold it up to the light, and you could read a paper right through the tire. 
Now, if you want to pick up a pair of these magnificent general tires, how about uh, visiting Lenny Marcianti and Bob Malanga, General Tire Service in Brooklyn, 472 Atlantic Avenue. I mean, that's. Did you get it? Did you get a guy at a bookstore? No, I didn't think so. Now, all I can tell you, I give you one word of advice. If you if you get that word that in God we trust or or my other book Wanda Hickey is not available, you just say bunk. Say bunk <laughs> because they are available, and the guy simply isn't going to get it for you. That's all. He's just sitting there, you know, you know, with the beard, trying to look like Buddha, trying to pretend that he invented Kierkegaard. Could you please bring it up. There you go. That's all I can say to you, friends, and I can't answer all your letters about it. But every year at this time, I get, you know, all these letters from people who apparently are trying to stock up or something. And I can't help you. No way. I would suggest, I mean, if you happen to have a 12-gauge shotgun around the house, you can get some action down at your local bookstore if you really want to, you know, cause a little excitement there. You know, just walk up to the bookstore and point your point your 12-gauge Remington over and under full choke. That's, a, you know, a biggie. I just pointed at the sky. Boom! Then walk in and say, uh, I want to ask about a book. He'll answer. Uh, please, would you, uh, thank you, Bill. Hold the eggplant in Chicago. I can't get that damn thing out of my mind. What's worse, I'm not even singing the right song. I'm not even right. I know I'm not singing the right tune. You never heard of it. Oh, that was... Nelson Eddy used to do that. Sure he did. The eggplant that they sure kind of do. I don't think they did it with uh, Jeanette McDonald. They were on a swing, yeah. And uh, she was dressed like an eggplant. Eggplant that they sure kind of do. La da 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 Rasputin's team, 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 Rudy, team, where's the out of back of my hand, you kid? Get off that table, from. Uh, get out, take that wind-up mouse with you. That kind of thing, anybody that has a wind-up mouse is capable of anything, kid. Get out of here. Uh, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith with the news. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. Payboard slices today for higher wage contracts for almost 23,000 newspaper and commercial printing plant workers in the New York City area, including the Daily News, the Times, and the New York Post. Instead of an 11% pay increase, the Payboard ruled an 8% was the maximum for 12,000 editorial members of the Newspaper Guild and the members of the craft unions at those three newspapers. Guild employees at the Long Island Press were not included in the ruling, they were granted the 11% wage hike because that increase was not due to become effective until almost one year after pay increases were to be given out at the other newspapers. 11,000 employees of the commercial printing firms in New York City were included in the 8% limit. The Price Commission also ordered a slight reduction in the advertising rate increases for the Times and the Daily News. Earlier, the Price Commission had approved a price increase for the nation's largest baking firm. Commission said Continental Baking Company could have a 3.3% price increase for its bread products sold in the Middle West. That price hike was allowed because of higher wheat costs resulting from recent American grain sales to the Soviet Union. Monsoon number two hit the metropolitan area today 
A November 2nd big rainstorm within six days accomplished just what last week's rainfall did. New weather records were set and the roads were flooded. Almost two inches fell on New York City to break the 1871 record of 1.13 inches of rainfall for this date. And if we get just more than one and a half inches more before the year's end, the total 58.3 inches for a year will also be broken. Meanwhile, heavy snow warnings are in effect for most of western New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, and central Maine. Most metropolitan area roads are now clear of the earlier flood conditions, including the West Side Highway and the FDR Drive. A retired federal prison official testified in Manhattan Federal Court today on the conditions at the Tombs Prison. John Anderson said the situation is so bad that guards consider working there as a punishment and want transfers. Anderson was...